Good morning, and welcome to Church of the City. Go ahead and have a seat. Let me welcome you this morning. I'm really grateful to be with you. My name is Russell. I am the teaching pastor here at Church of the City, and this morning um, is a pretty special morning. We do this from time to time, um, and it's, it's for us a part of our values, where we believe very thoroughly, and we want to put our beliefs into motion. Um, we believe that a church community um, needs to be the kind of community where everyone and anyone can participate. Um, we use the language of inclusion, where everyone is included. And we see Jesus being particularly inclusive, almost radically so in his day and age, where he takes people at the fringe and the margin, the outside, and says, please come and be a part of what we're doing um, as the kingdom of God is unfolding on earth. Um, and so there's some very obvious ways that that is accomplished. I mean, some ways where, as a society, we have divided um, over issues of race, over issues of sexual orientation, over issues of sexual identity. And those are ones that are very um, common for us to talk about right now when we talk about um, inclusion or exclusion. But one that I think it's overlooked quite frequently um, is the way that we um, do or don't include people in different generations from us. Um, most of us are very comfortable in our own generational cluster. And outside of our generational cluster, um, we get a little bit wonky, um, where we don't know how to deal with people who have um, a different station in life, who are younger than us or older than us. Particularly, we struggle with other people's children. Yeah, yeah, you know it, right? Like, even your own children, you're like, I can get behind this. I believe in the multi-generational something. And then my friend's kids come over. And it's challenging, right? Not, now some of you are my friends and your kids have been at my house. I'm not trying to say anything against your kids. I'm just saying it's, it's particularly challenging. And so as a church, to live out our values, what we do on a, a regular basis is we want our children to be a part um, of our life together, and we want to be part of their life. And what that means is some difficult, challenging work, like a family service. What we're doing this morning, um, and the reason I'm sitting on the stool so early, um, and our time around the scriptures happening at the front end of our gathering, is because we are going to take a break after our teaching time. If you have a, a kiddo with you, we're going to invite you to go and not just invite you, we're going to ask you and plead with you to go get your child because no one else will take care of your child if you don't do this. Go check your kid out of um, our kids' area. Um, get, if you don't have a kid or do, get some coffee, get some pastries. We're going to take a quick five-minute break, and we'll come back for worship. And we want our kids to participate with us, and we want to participate with them. Now, I understand um, for some of you this is anxiety-producing, and that is perfectly fine. Um, two reasons. One, you're an adult, and you can try to start working out some of this anxiety. If it's overwhelming and you need to go, that's okay, too. But for us, um, I want to challenge you, um, particularly if you don't have kids. Um, I want to challenge you to stick around um, and be a part of this multi-generational expression of life together as we all, as a community, are trying to figure out some of the very same things. Who we are, who God is, and what that relationship between us and God looks like. Um, and that is something that is not isolated to adults. Kids are also trying to figure out the same stuff. And as they work that out in their, um, in their very young um, experience, and as they um, age and become older into adulthood, these kind of experiences might be some of the most important for them as they try to wrestle with um, their parents and their parents' um, way of raising them, their parents' friends, their church that they grew up in. I mean, all these children that are singing that we can hear upstairs right now, this will be the church they grew up in uh, for many of them. And so what we do, the way we embody what it looks like to include them and learn from them is what they're going to walk away with. Um, so my hope is um, that you would stick around and be a part of this second half of our, our gathering time together. 
I'm going to do this. Um, we are um, going to move right into the scriptures. Um, oh, by the way, on your seat, I always forget this detail, is a white communication card. Please, please, please fill that out at some point. Um, even if you come on a regular basis, let us know you're here, jot down your name, and you can put it in the offering at the end of our gathering. Um, but to help focus us around the scripture this morning, I would like us to take a breath um, and simply to take a minute, take a beat, pray, um, and attempt to orient ourselves back around Jesus, which really is our pursuit this morning. Um, we are, as a church community, sold on the idea that Jesus of Nazareth is the flesh and bones incarnate arrival of God on earth. And history hinges on that reality, on the incoming and the inbreaking of the king to planet earth. And for us, um, that gets lost in the fray often. Um, the way we do life, the busyness we, we all have, the things that weigh on our souls. And so for a moment, um, I'm going to invite you uh, to simply to steer your thoughts, your soul, your heart back towards Jesus of Nazareth. And as a church, one of our practices is simply to take a full 60 seconds, a minute, um, to do that. Um, I would call it silent 60 seconds, but it will be anything but silent um, with the noise around us, being in a city, being that our chairs are squeaky, but simply choosing for one minute to focus our attention on Jesus of Nazareth. So you would just take a minute, take a breath. I'll pray at the end of that, and then we'll get into our time in the scripture. Uh, hearing the sound of the other half of our church community right now uh, singing, God, it's a reminder to me personally that there's a lot more going on in your kingdom on planet Earth than, than I could ever be aware of. And being aware um, right now consciously of the fact that our youngers um, are, are on some level, on the level they're at, God's singing and trying to make sense of their own existence in light of you and turning that attention back to you in a form of something called worship. God is, it's pretty powerful. God, I'm grateful for, uh, for this church community. I'm grateful for what these people mean to one another. God, what they mean to me, what we get to do is we try to follow you. God, thank you uh, for the opportunity to be a gathered church community sharing the same air this morning. God, thank you for calling us into your story, the story of love and hope and renewal and the opportunity to give that away to the people around us that we care about most. God, I pray this morning as we focus our time on you, around your scriptures, around your son, God, I pray that we as humans would be better for it, that you would grow us, that you would teach us, you would shape us, and God, in the end, that you would help us be a little bit more whole and complete as we find that wholeness in you. We love you. We pray in your name. Amen. 
at the risk of starting something I can't control, have you ever really been hungry before? Now, I, I caution asking the question because you may be hungry right now, and I can't control the fact um, that you're hungry right now. I can help it. There are pastries in the back. At any point in the next few moments, if this conversation just goes the direction where you need to satisfy uh, the hunger that's in your stomach, please get a cup of coffee, get some pastry in the back. But have you ever really been hungry? I mean, beyond the scope of your, your tummy grumbled and you reached for Lucky Charms and you satisfied the grumble in your stomach. Can you, you think of a time in your life when, when hunger drove you towards something that, um, that seemed a little bit irrational? Now, I don't know about you, for me. Um, I, I grew up in uh, a privileged American, white, uh, middle-class household. And so for me, um, my hunger was nearly always satisfied um, very quickly. Um, I, I rarely went without food. And when I did go without food, um, I became my mom's worst enemy. Um, in, a, in a couple ways, like low blood sugar means I am angry and um, no one can satisfy anything emotionally that I have going on. Um, and, and beyond that, um, because I wasn't used to hunger, I, I would just um, become very, very outspoken of the fact that I need to be fed right now. Um, and you become very whiny and complaining, you understand how this goes. Uh, you were probably quite similar, um, many of you. Now that changed for me. Um, some of you know this experience of my life and some of you don't, but um, details are neither here nor there. I, I got very, very sick at one point in my life and ended up um, having a massive um, issue with my digestive system that put me in the hospital. And the reason I share that with you is it was the first time in my life that I dealt with hunger in a way that um, absolutely thrilled me and scared me. Here's what I mean. So they, because of the, the seriousness of the disease I had, they had to stop feeding me. Um, they had to give my bowel rest. And so um, what they do is they give you an IV and they give you like 400 calories a day, which I don't know if you realize, but 400 calories a day is not quite enough really to, to be okay in the world. Um, it's enough to keep you alive for a while. Um, so, and they say, like, it's kind of an indefinite period of time that you're going to go through this, and they don't know how your body's going to respond. And so um, initially, like, yeah, we'll probably, you know, for a week or so, we're going to keep you from eating. And, and let me just tell you, the first week is hell. Like, everything your body has taught you about your relationship with food is being um, challenged. Like you're, just, you're just being challenged with all that impulse and all the, the, the desire for food is, is present all the time. And you can't, like, I couldn't shake it from my mind. It was, it was very, very overwhelming. Um, after about a week or so, though, um, in getting into the second week, it was, it was completely different. Um, all of a sudden, um, I wasn't hungry like I was, but I started having hallucinations <laughs> about food. It was, it was the craziest thing. Like I, I would like have these like daydreams about having a meal, and I would believe I had eaten something. It got crazier. I, was, I would have these dreams, and um, one of the dreams, is it, it still has made an impression on me to this day. Um, not only do I remember it, but it changed my life for the better. I had this dream, and, the, and it, was, it, was, it was this fitful kind of dream. I was obviously dreaming about food. Um, I would dream about two things, food and soccer, of all things. Like, I don't know how that happened, but I was dreaming about food on this particular occasion, and I, would, I, I, was, I was having these dreams about like, these very peculiar foods. Now, some of you have claimed the same kind of thing through your pregnancies, that you just have these urges. Now, I don't understand that because I've never been pregnant myself, and my wife didn't experience that um, very much, but 
I kind of equate it to that. I'm just like these like wild kind of like your brain needs something and you don't know why it needs it. I had this dream about making a grilled peanut butter and jelly sandwich, <laughs> which I'm sure has been done before, but in my world, it had never been accomplished. So here I am, week two of not eating anything, laying in a hospital bed, um, and I have this dream, and I wake up, and I told my mom, who was sitting there by my bedside, and I'm like, Mom, I've got it. The first thing I'm going to eat when I can eat is a grilled peanut butter and jelly sandwich. My mom thought I was like a bit off my rocker, which was not entirely untrue. Not the least of which was, how am I going to make a grilled peanut butter and jelly sandwich in a hospital anyway, if I did want that? So week three comes along. And now the hallucinations are in full force. I'm having these like very vivid dreams and waking like, concepts about food, but hunger is completely gone. Uh, week three of not eating, and my body has, has now completely respond, or responded to what was going on, and I'm, my, what's going on physiologically is that my body's not giving me a hunger response anymore. Week four of not eating, and at this particular stage, something began to happen that I think um, began to not only surprise me, but, but really shape a, a, this experience as I, as I walked away from it. I remember sitting in my hospital bed, um, and at this point, obviously very, very sick. Um, I had lost a ton of weight. I already lost a lot of weight from the disease. I'm down to about 105 pounds um, at this point in my life. And I'm laying in a bed, and I reached over to the bedside table um, to pick up a water bottle. And I pulled my bicep muscle doing it. I strained it. I just didn't expect that, that was going to happen. And come to find out, um, your body does something to preserve itself as you go hungry. As you go hungry, um, there's this process, and, and some of you are in the medical field, you understand this better than I will. As I understand it, initially, our hunger response is to make sure we have enough stored energy, so if we ever have an issue with food scarcity, that we would be able to survive, so enough fat on our body. And so that hunger response is to keep that, that fat store full and keep us energized. Well, as you, as you go through the phases of being hungry, you just see in a day, you skip a meal, your body switches from telling you to get more stored food to using your stored energy. And that's a very regular process uh, that we go through all the time. But if that's extended over long periods of time and you deplete that whole fat store that your body has, um, you, you really run the risk of your body beginning to atrophy, which is this process of your body using what it has beyond your fat in order to feed itself. Um, and the first thing to go, as I understand it, after your fat is gone, are your muscles, are your, are your long muscles in your arms and legs and whatnot. And I didn't realize that. And so picking up a water bottle, I had strained my bicep. And it was a bad strain. It was like three weeks of not being able to use my bicep. At this point, like, I'm getting like, very anxious about the world. I want to eat everything. I mean, hallucinating, full bore. I talked my mom into um, letting me go for a walk. I hadn't been on my bed for all this whole time. And so we go for a walk and we're, um, we're leaving um, out of the, the hospital doors onto this upper um, terrace garden space. And I wanted to do it myself, because you get this way, right? When you're just like anxious about things and you haven't been able to do much and you've been immobile. And so I, I went and pushed on the door to go out on the patio and I couldn't open the door. So as you do, just instinctively, um, I turned around and I put my back against the door and I pushed and I strained my, my quad. Um, really bad. Again, like a three or four week injury of straining my quad. My body had eaten so much of the muscle um, on my frame that I was, I was at this point of risking serious injury if I just tried to do anything normal. Now, I bring all this up because um, barring that kind of wild experience of getting radically sick and dealing with this, 
Our society doesn't understand hunger. Even among our most impoverished in our society, we are such a wealthy、um, community. That, and being connected as this church is to a lot of the issues that we deal with in our city, most prevalent、uh, where hunger could be a real issue among our homeless population, food scarcity is not the issue.、Um, in fact, food resources are in our city somewhat of, of a problem. We have so much food, we're throwing away massive amounts of food that could otherwise be、um, eaten by people who, if they were hungry, We could give it to them. Now, it's not saying that it's not a challenging process to get people to a spot where they will accept help and get food or whatnot, but the actual having food in our society isn't an issue. We have such abundance. It's this kind of circumstance that, we, that I found myself in where, as I think back on it and as I wrestle with it, I was, I was given this like, wild privilege to, to experience a part of being human that our society rarely experiences. Now, there are people who have. Food scarcity issues in our society. We do, we do have that in our society. We do have children who miss meals and only eat when they get to school campuses. But by and large, across our socioeconomic spectrums, we deal with hunger by immediately satisfying it. When we're hungry, we do something about it. Now, what's wild about hunger, as you think about it, is as soon as you go without food for a while, It becomes the driving force of your existence. All the other things that were important to you priorly when you weren't hungry don't become quite as important. And there's a lot of theory about that. You've heard of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, this pyramid of these basic needs we have of food and shelter and water.、Um, when those are satisfied, then we can address more relevant needs, or, or not more relevant, but needs that are、uh, a bit more、um, less tangible, a bit more ethereal, like relationships or success or what other else matters to us in life. When we go hungry, when hunger begins to do its work on us, it brings us down to this primal place of being human. In fact, hunger is one of those impulses, one of those instinctual impulses built into our bodies that keeps us alive. And oftentimes it goes overlooked by our society. It isn't until we come face to face with the implications of going without food for a long period of time that we can see. How necessary food is, how necessary this impulse that drives us towards food is. Now, this is just the dabblings of one individual as I think about this. But I have been mystified in my past about if, if we hold to this narrative, as many of us do, and as I personally do, that God created humans, and that we're creating the image of God, and we bear the image of God. And even though that's been broken because of our choices, we still possess the image of God. Why did God create such a short term relationship with this thing that we need so regularly? What I mean is, you have a meal at nine in the morning, and by noon you're hungry again. You have a meal at noon, and by six you're hungry again. Why is there this, this perpetual motion machine of needing food? God didn't have to make it that way. He could make it any way He wanted to. He could have designed humanity without the need for this replenishing energy source of food and without the instinctual impulse. Hunger. And yet he did. And yet that is how we operate. That is who we are. Now, if you're completely lost on why we're talking about food and hunger so thoroughly right now, it's because this particular aspect of being human is what Jesus picks up on in the blessing we're going to look at today. Now, we're in this section、um, of, of the very early, like, groundbreaking sermon 
of Jesus of Nazareth as he kind of unfolds for the very first time that he is something beyond a teaching rabbi from Nazareth. He's been doing miracles all over Galilee. He's been preaching these very small sermons about the kingdom of heaven has arrived, thereby implying that he's the king, but he's not making that very clear. And then all of a sudden, he finds himself followed by a crowd of people along the Sea of Galilee, and, and they're, they're all there looking for answers. I mean, and rightly so. He's been doing miracles and saying some pretty out there things, and they're curious about who he is and what he's capable of doing. They want to know more. But at this point, they're noncommittal. And so Jesus has this opportunity, and, and as he begins to unfold for the very first time who he is and what he's doing, he starts with a traditional blessing section. And I say traditional because this would be a very normal way for a teacher to start some kind of ministry um, in the first century in the Palestinian place. But beyond that, the way Jesus starts this blessing section, while itself is traditional, what he says, the substance of it, is anything but traditional. If you remember, the first three movements so far have been quite radical. They, they've been kind of outside the box, shining a light on people who are otherwise excluded from the normal view of what people would expect the community of God would look like. He is given this blessing that would typically be reserved for people who are fairly good at following God or fairly good at going to temple or fairly good at memorizing scripture. And he's given it away to people that wouldn't have been expected. And basically, he's, he's shined a light to say, those of you who feel as though you're outside the kingdom, you've, you may be at the epicenter of the actual kingdom of God. I mean, listen to what he says leading into our section today. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. And blessed are the meek. It's not blessed are the strong. Blessed are the people who have life figured out. And blessed are those who are beyond all their pain. Blessed are those who are struggling as humans. And he shines a light and says, this is the object of my kingdom. You who are coming to terms with the reality that things are imperfect. You who understand how imperfect your existence is. How crummy of a story you're a part of. And the way you've contributed to it. And the way other people have contributed to it. And the fact that you sit in this moment realizing things aren't right. Jesus says you're blessed. Basically saying, blessed are you who understand you need God. But then something changes, and these first three movements completely change into something altogether different. From blessed are you who are, are struggling in life, those who are poor in spirit, those who are mourning, those who are meek. And he turns the corner to this phrase we're going to look at this morning. I'm going to put it on the screen for you, and I'd like you to look at it there. I mean, I know you may have a Bible, you may have it on your phone, but I want to, I want to look at it together. I'm going to keep it on the screen our whole time so that you can keep referencing it as we talk about this. But he draws from this very primal, instinctual impulse of hunger to make a point about who's blessed. He says this in Matthew 5, 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Now, everything I just said about hunger could also be said about thirst. They're, they're companion concepts. Now, hunger is a bit more long-term. You can live quite a bit longer without food than you can without water. And maybe there's a point to be made here that there's something 
to be said, when it comes to thirst, we can live about seven days without water before our body completely shuts down and dies. Hunger, a much longer period of time, depending on your initial storage of energy going into the, into the period without food. But the point of using these two metaphors is that there is a termination point to the existence of a person if we go without food or water. And it's from the firmament of that particular idea that Jesus draws a blessing. And he says, blessed is the person who hungers and thirsts for righteousness. Now, we need to address this concept of righteousness before we can go any further. Because if had he said food, we would have all been like, we're on it. Very practical, very tangible. Blessed is a person who hungers and thirsts for food. That's all humans. Fantastic. We're good. But there's a twist here, right? It's the unexpected, using a metaphor to make another point. This word righteous comes up pretty often in Matthew, about 90 times. Uh, and this concept of righteousness is one that I, I get the sense, the majority of us who have been around the church for some time, that even us don't necessarily understand what this concept is. And for some of us, it's because we've been indoctrinated with one version of what this word means, and that's all we can hold on to. For others, we were, this word has been used so regularly without any definition that we've gotten so far down the road with our Christian experience that we can't raise our hand and ask what it means because that would be embarrassing at this stage. So let me explain a bit of what this word means. Dikaiosune is the word in Greek. And the concept of this word is rich with Old Testament imagery. On one level, this word in English expresses itself pretty naturally. Righteousness or rightness is relationship with God. This word is in concept of something that has to do with some kind of right standing with God. Now, typically that has been understood in both the, the Jewish context and then on into contemporary Christianity today with something that has to do with keeping the rules, with doing all the things right. And the problem with that is that is what Jesus fights against personally, his whole ministry. And in many ways, that is what the story of Scripture is railing against. That our capacity to be right is impossible. It doesn't exist. Our capacity to be perfect was lost when we shook our fist at God and said, we know how to do life better than you do. That our sin story has proven the fact that righteousness is impossible. That we can't in our own strength or in our own way of thinking, our own way of action, ever be righteous people Define that way. It's an impossibility. If it were possible, then we have no need for Christ. No need for God to do anything about it. No need for God to show up in flesh and bones and meet us in our story if we could escape our story and find ourselves in the presence of God on our own. So yeah, there's a sense here of rule-keeping and if you read that way into this particular line, blessed is the person who hungers and thirsts to keep the rules. That is a twisted version of what Jesus began expressing, both here and through the course of his ministry. I'm a rule monger. My wife is smiling. Reading the rules for me of any board game is maybe the most important step of playing the board game. Yeah, some of you, well, we can talk about this later. I can argue my point pretty well. <laughs> yeah, 
If you win and you didn't obey the rules, then did you really win at all? I mean, really. So, I, I resonate deeply with this, this part of, or this interpretation, this understanding of this idea. Blesses person who keeps the rules because I want to keep the rules. The issue is, as the best rule keeper, I still fail at this. It's, it's, it's funny to talk about in board game land, but in my faith, my journey with, with Jesus, for much of my life was defined by whether or not I could keep the rules or not. And as a high achiever, I wanted, if I couldn't keep the rules, I wanted to hide behind my ability to pretend that I was keeping the rules. And so I could look at a passage like that and say, Jesus really loves me and I'm blessed because I am keeping the rules. And I don't think that's at all what's going on here. This word, dikaiosune, has richer meaning than just keeping rules. In fact, importantly, this, this word is not just rule-keeping. In fact, that's almost not in view at all. Right standing with God, while that's in view, is cloudy on what it means. What does it mean to have a right standing with the God who created us? We'll get to that in just a second. The third place, the third option for this particular word, and the way it's used through the scriptures, is the word justice. Justice. It means righteousness, rightness, right standing, and justice. Blessed is the one who hungers and thirsts for justice. Now let me just challenge your thinking here for a second, because if you've grown up in the American Christian church, this is a challenging interpretation of this particular word, because it wasn't expressed to us this way. But let me just put this in context. Blessed is the poor in spirit. Blessed is the one who mourns. Blessed is the one who's meek and powerless. Those are all justice issues. Immediately after that, Jesus switches his thinking and says, these are the ones who are the epicenter of my kingdom, and now I'm going to change it a little bit, but not so far that it is completely detached from what I just said. We're not talking about those who are experiencing injustice. Blessed are you who hunger and thirst for justice. Who can acknowledge that things aren't the way they're supposed to be, but you're hungry for it to be better. Who can see the world's a broken place, but also want God to do something about it. Not by destroying humanity, not by obliterating earth, but by doing something to help it. To make right what's been made wrong, which is the definition justice. See, this concept of right standing with God includes rule keeping and it includes justice issues and it brings them together, in my view, in a beautiful kind of way. There's this moment in Jesus' life and you're probably familiar with it. There's a group of men at the temple who are ready to execute a woman who was caught in the act of adultery. Chances are she is naked or nearly naked publicly because she was dragged out of a sexual act with a married man. Not to mention the married man is nowhere in view and is not being punished for this particular issue. And the men at the temple, religious leaders, have rocks in their hands and are ready to execute her based on an Old Testament law. You remember what Jesus does, right? Jesus walks into the scenario and stands between the men with rocks and the woman the woman who is vulnerable, the woman who is going to be murdered, the woman who has been ripped out of 
a private situation and brought into public. And begins to scribble in the sand, and we don't know what he says. But verbally, he says, you with no sin, feel free. Chuck that first rock at her. And every single one of those people leaves. And then Jesus says to the woman, go and sin no more. This very complicated scenario, this very challenging situation, we see an expression of what righteousness looks like. It's a justice issue. It's human rights. It's protecting the vulnerable. It's making sure a woman is not murdered by men who are also equally as broken and sinful, who have no right to execute her. And it is naming Woman, you have a problem. Your world is broken, and you've chosen to violate your marriage vows with another person. Don't continue to do that. And the two come crashing together in one of the most beautiful expressions of what righteousness on earth looks like. Blessed are you when you hunger and thirst for this woman's story who's caught in adultery. What Jesus is doing here, in my view, is he's tipping his hand to the kind of Messiah he is. And we could go story after story after story of Jesus, a woman at a well who's had multiple husbands, who's a Samaritan, she's ethnically excluded, and Jesus welcomes her and talks to her and names openly, you've been married four times and you're with a man who's not your husband any longer. And then he loves her and protects her and welcomes her. And she responds by going to get her whole village and brings them out to meet him. Because of this wild relationship between the way he protects her and ex executes justice and names reality, that your world is broken and it's not right. See, what's happening, I think, as Jesus tips his hand right here, is he's naming the fact this is what it's going to take to rejoin humanity with God. It's not just going to take rule keeping. It's not just going to take justice issues being addressed and solved. It's going to take both. It's going to take us really wrestling with who we are in front of a God who really knows what's best for humanity. It's going to take us wrestling with what are we going to do with our own life? How are we going to live life? Are we going to live in the kind of way that does its absolute best to follow the example and model that God has given us, while also looking at people who are broken around us the same way we are and saying, we want something better for you. We want life to actually look more like the way it was intended to look before we all mess this up. And the two come crashing together. And in my view, as we see Jesus wrestle with this, at times he's at the temple and he's talking about this is what the law does or doesn't say. And other times he's just with people and says, Zacchaeus, I'm going to go to your house today, and I know you're a mess. And doesn't berate him one bit. What we have in light of Jesus is a complicated arrival of the king that takes a more thorough investigation, a more thorough relationship with what we see in Jesus through these texts in order to understand what the righteousness of God actually looks like. For many of us who grew up in the American Christian church, we default to the side 
of being judgmental, argumentative, rule keepers. In fact, I've expressed this before, my dad is a bit old, uh, but I just came across my notes on this particular, again, uh, particular set of stats. But when asked, millennials, when asked why they don't go to church, 87% responded because those people are judgmental. Right now, of, of our millennial generation, between 2 and 7%, depending on where you are in the U.S., regularly attend church. There's a massive block for those of us who identify in the millennial crowd to this particular issue. And it'd be one thing if standing behind our judgmentalism, God was saying, be judgmental. If that's what the scriptures were saying, if that's what Jesus told us to do and be, then well, let's, let's be that and you know, other people be damned. Like That's okay, we're gonna have to judge them uh, because God told us to. But that isn't what Jesus says here. That isn't what Jesus does. Jesus is perfectly fine naming what's good and healthy for humanity and what's not good and healthy for humanity. He's good, he's fine saying this is sinful and this is not. This is broken and this is good. And then he doesn't let that stop him from loving anybody. In fact, I would say rarely is it that we see Jesus choosing to name the brokenness and the hurt and the pain before there's a relationship. The one exception to that, and this honestly gives me a lot of hope, but also a lot of pause personally. The one exception to that, we see Jesus at the temple with the religious leaders in the vacuum of relationship without much established credibility with them, outright accusing them of their, of their sin and their brokenness. You whitewashed tombs, you brood of vipers, you are clean on the outside and you're full of dead man's bones on the inside. Jesus goes straight to name calling when he comes up against this kind of sin. People who hold the title of being God's chosen and God's leaders and then inside just being full of deadness. And it's this issue right here that he's calling them on. You stand there and you accuse. And you can't see the fact that you're dead inside. This blessing is a shift subtly in the momentum of these blessing sections. Jesus is saying in the first three, things are a mess. Life is not the way it's supposed to be. But he refuses to leave us there. He refuses to leave us in our own misery. The most just thing he could do, the most righteous thing he could do is come and meet with humanity and say, let me show you how we can remedy this. And the way we can do it is not by you pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, is not you getting one more law to try to follow, is not setting up one more religious organization or institution to tell the world how horrible they are. Jesus says the way we do this is I demonstrate how much I love you and I pay the penalty for all the things that you couldn't do on your own. I do what should be done to you, willfully. Reality of what Jesus is saying here as he tips his hand and as he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, he is looking at himself and saying, I am hungry and I am thirsty for this kind of righteousness. The kind that looks at humanity with love and compassion and was willing to do something about it, sacrificially, lovingly, selflessly, Jesus is saying, 
I'm not going to leave you alone in your misery. In fact, I am going to enjoin you to my whole mission. So when you can see how broken you are, how you're mourning over your loss, how you're poor in spirit, how you feel powerless, blessed are you when that motivates you, when the impulse inside of your soul is a hunger for something better, for something good, for something whole, for something complete, for the righteousness of God. And the promise is beautiful. Jesus doesn't say just, well done you when you can feel that inside of you. You want something better than the brokenness you're experiencing right now. He says, and you will be filled. In essence saying, you will find it. The thing about this whole relationship with the hunger conversation for me is that if we continue to just have meal after meal after meal, we never experience hunger. In much the same way, if time after time after time we just pretend on the surface that we're good enough as humans, that life is okay, it's like eating those little meals all the time. My son, seven-year-old um, and growing into a man, and probably prematurely, he's, if you've ever seen him before, his genetics um, are astounding. Um, he's, he's bigger than he ought to be. He's adopted, so he doesn't have my genetics. I'm a little shrimpy dude. He's, he's going to be quite, quite large as a person. We can't feed the kid enough to keep him satisfied. We feed him breakfast, a good breakfast. I mean, my, my wife makes pancakes and waffles almost every morning of the week to feed this child. If it's not that, if it's a PE day, then it's eggs and toast to get more protein. He knows it. You know, he hates eggs and toast. I kid you not, he finishes a meal and the first words out of his mouth, can I have a snack? The kid will eat a snack from the time he finishes breakfast to the time he starts lunch. And he'll eat lunch. And he'll ask for a snack. Regularly, it doesn't matter at any interval of the day, if we hear from across the house the loud cry of our son saying, Mom or Dad, 90% of the time, he's asking for food. The thing about it is, as these small snacks, you know, as he eats these small snacks, he has these twinges of hunger motivating him for that. But he never experiences what it's like to be hungry. For many of us in American Christianity, we have sold ourselves a story that if we behave well enough, that if we keep the rules well enough, we're going to be fine. And all these small meals keep us away from understanding our true hunger, our true need. And the real need is that you are far more broken than you think you are. And that is Jesus' point in these first three blessings. We are far more broken than we believe we are. We stay on the surface for so long. We take these small meals of believing. I go to church, I read my Bible every now and then, I pray every now and then, and I feel good about the world. And the reality is under that surface, our needs run far deeper. Blessed are you when you can recognize your needs are the first three blessings. And this one turns a corner and says, blessed, blessed are you when you're willing to do something about what you need. Blessed are you, are you when that recognition of how broken you are turns you to motivation, to an impulse to do nothing but pursue the righteousness of God, the closeness to God that you desperately need because of your brokenness. Blessed are you, blessed is the one who has gone without for so long when their soul needs to be satiated 
by the goodness of God. A takeaway for me from this, a very challenging takeaway for me, is not to stop doing Christian things like reading my Bible, showing up at church, being part of relationships that are significant around faith. The challenge for me is to change the narrative in my mind about the implications of those things. The implication of going to church isn't that you're a good person or that you don't have needs. The implication of reading your Bible isn't that you did a good job today and deserve a check mark. The implication of being in Christian relationship is not, I'm glad I got that done and I got a little bit out of that and I feel a bit better about myself. The implication of all of those things has to come out of this hunger for knowing the God who created us. We have to keep at the front of our consciousness the depth to which we need God so that we can pursue that God. Without it, you guys, we turn into duty-driven, religious, judgmental zealots. And that is the opposite of what we see Jesus saying in these particular blessings. You're far more broken than you think you are. And hear what Jesus is saying is that he loves you far more than you think he does. And as he unpacks his kingdom, as he unpacks this blessing, he's saying, I am here doing something about your brokenness. I am doing something about your pain. I am showing up. I'm walking in the dust of humanity for you. Because I won't leave you to your own destruction if all we're doing is an exercise in futility. Here are the rules. You can't keep them. Sorry about your luck. Instead, Jesus says, this is a justice issue. I will arrive and I will execute justice on earth. And what that means is I will step in your place. I will love you. And from that, you have the space to recognize your needs and to lean into the God who's arrived and said, I love you. I love this blessing section. I love it because it is so backwards and so upside down of what I expect. Even having been around the scriptures and around Jesus for as long as I have, it's still startling to me that Jesus would choose to start his ministry in such a radical form as to say, those of you who feel like you're at the margins, those of you who feel like you'd be excluded, you are actually included. And more importantly, you are the epicenter of my focus. The king shows up and says, I'm not here to just take care of the people who show up at the temple. I'm here for humans, real humans, who are really broken and really looking for hope. This is the blessing section of Jesus. And you guys, this is the center of our faith. To hold on to the fact that we are broken people. And in the middle of our brokenness, we are finding hope in Jesus. Let's pray. God, this morning, as we think on and meditate on and internalize what it means to experience your blessing and who it is that you focus on 
as you give your blessing away. God, may we be found as a part of those people. God, may we be people who are hungry and thirsty for your goodness, personally, also, God, outside of our own bodies, outside of our own life. God, may we be people who hunger and thirst for your goodness to find its place in our city. God, may we be the kind of people who are hungry and thirsty for your goodness to find its place in our families, our families that are messy and challenging and and sometimes so broken that it feels like it's hopeless. God, may we be the kind of people who hunger and thirst for your goodness in our neighborhoods, at our workplaces, and in our everyday lives. God, we love you. We are hopeful because you have done something that is way beyond our ability. And so we say thank you. Amen.